Atamari here. Welcome to First Up. It is Ramere. That's Friday, the 16th of September. Ko Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up this morning, we're going to cross to LEJ in London. You might have heard there's a bit of a queue. It's a 20 hour wait uh, that's in line to view the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II. Also, warnings that the cost of food could drive people to unhealthy lifestyles. We're going to hear from an accountant turned chef, actually, who's applying both of her skills to reducing food waste. And the First Up crew got an idea we went on a field trip to find out how our bodies have responded to the COVID-19 vaccine. The results showed very clearly a differing antibody level based on the time since vaccination and effectively you're getting a curve of and seeing the antibody level drop off over time and that's consistent with the international literature. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. Kornathan Rarere Aho, and we begin this morning in the United Kingdom, where a five mile long queue has gathered uh, to get the chance to view the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II as it lies in state at Westminster Hall. Joining us uh, on the line is Ellie J. Kira, Ellie, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm good. How are you? Very good. I've been reading online from some English people saying that you prepare for this all your life as an English person. You queue for everything, but this, this is the boss stage of all queues. It's it's really taking over the whole news cycle, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. There was an update just a couple of minutes ago um, that said that actually the queue has gone down from nine hours. It's now eight hours. So you can expect to queue for eight hours. But it's totally right. I feel like it's one of the most um, British things that it could be to have this absolutely crazy long queue. They said it's 4.4 miles now. It starts from Westminster Hall. That's where today's the first day that, that the Queen has been lying in state in Westminster Hall. There was that procession yesterday from Buckingham Palace down the Mall, and people I mean, the procession was really well attended. They said it was total capacity for that too. But this queue that has started uh, today or started a couple of days ago, I mean, I was hearing um, people whilst she was still in Balmoral and people were paying their respects up there, there were people camping out in tents along the Thames to be first in this queue um, to go through and pay their respects. So people who work on the South Bank, I was hearing earlier, say they've seen it building all day and kind of the infrastructure being set up to cope with it as well. So they've yeah. got portaloos, they've got big umbrellas, coffee stands. It's quite a grey overcast day and people are waiting for hours and hours for this. Um, also today we've heard as well Prince William and Catherine, they're the new Prince and Princess of Wales. They've been at um, Sandringham talking to crowds, accepting flowers, looking at tributes, that kind of thing, um, that kind of thing as well. So it is all still it's all still going on. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, the atmosphere, I've been told, is quite a friendly atmosphere and people are willing to do this because it feels historical. It feels like something that you should do. And I think especially if you're in London or visiting London, it feels like the thing to do at the moment. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, th this will can continue on over the weekend, as you say. I know that more details of the funeral have been released. What, what can we expect? So it's actually quite a lot of details. They've released this, um, this press release has come out from the palace. It's saying that it's going, the funeral will be on Monday at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. There'll be a committal service at St. George's Chapel uh, in Windsor the same day at four o'clock on the morning of the funeral. So this lying in state that's happening at the moment, that's going to finish uh, at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and that, that will be the final time that members of the public are admitted um, to that area. After that, at quarter to 11, the coffin will be uh, taken by procession across 
to Westminster Abbey. That will be with the King, members of the royal family, the King's household, uh, another procession as well. And then they will have that, that service there in the Abbey for the state funeral service. So this is the one that's going to be attended by heads of state, by overseas government um, representatives. Joe Biden will attend. I think Jacinda Ardern will attend as well. Um, Prime Ministers of the realm, that kind of thing. A, a service, lots of speeches. Um, there's There'll be a playing of the last post as well, followed by two minutes of silence. Um, I was reading earlier too that Heathrow Airport released their statement saying um, somehow they'll reschedule flights or they'll stop the planes because um, most of the planes into Heathrow land over London and they've said for those two minutes they'll make sure that that doesn't happen um, and they usually I mean that's quite a big thing in itself they usually have I think three planes taking off or landing every minute um, so I'm not sure how they'll do that but that will happen and then the day I mean there's lots more there's another procession through London there's gun salutes Big Ben will ring out um, the army will be there she'll be then taken to Windsor, there'll be another service, another procession, uh, and then she will be eventually buried beside her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh in Windsor. Yeah, it's, and just an incredible ceremony to see. I saw one of the poor soldiers that was, you know, uh, watching over the coffin, fainted yesterday and and, and fell uh, on the way there too. And it must be, what a strain on, on King Charles, you know, for, for him as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is uh, there are lots of things coming out at the moment that's talking about how he must feel personally. And I mean, there was a story today um, saying what Prince William has been saying to people who've come to pay their respects and how he apparently said to one um, person, it reminded him of the funeral of his mother, of having to walk behind the coffin of Princess Diana as well. So there is, I mean, we'll never truly know, but they are, I suppose, a family going through grief and having to do this very publicly. They'll have another vigil um, the night before the funeral too. And it is, it's a very public spectacle. It is a piece of history, but it must be very difficult for them at the moment too. Yes. Ellie, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, there she was somewhere near a chipmunks, I think. Uh, that was uh, Ellie J, of course, uh, reporting uh, on the current state of uh, the queue and everything else. It is 11 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, uh, Nathan Rarere. And uh, well, yeah, keen for your feedback, of course. Um, there's plenty going on. I actually saw this one, which might be slightly different. You can, any 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 uh, subject you would like, you can message me about there. Um, but I see that Harvard professors, this is interesting, you should only eat six French fries per serving. Is that even possible? 2101. Is it possible to only eat six French fries? Per, could you do it? Do you think you could do it there as well? I'll, I will eat other people's French fries, I'll tell you that. Uh, but anyway, 2101 there as well. But you might have many, many um, thoughts uh, on what else is uh, going on in the world. I just thought I'd uh, chuck that one in there too, in amongst uh, all of our other um, very sort of solemn news here on our Friday. So let's go to Africa now. And we are joined from Ghana by our correspondent, Nabil Ahmed. Morning, Nabil. How are you? Fine, thank you, Nita and Morena. So, Queen Elizabeth, obviously close connections with many African nations. So, which leaders are going to be attending her funeral? Indeed, uh, Nita, we know that uh, leaders from the Commonwealth countries have been invited for this particular funeral. Um, we know that uh, in Africa, there are at least 19 member countries and they've received their uh, mean invitation, um, is trickling in as to which leaders will be able to attend. We know for sure that uh, South Africa's president, 
uh, Sir Ramaphosa has announced that he would attend uh, the funeral. Um, Ghana, for instance, is also a member country of the Commonwealth. Uh, we know that President Okufado has received the invitation, but he's not yet announced whether he'll be able to attend or not. And also we know that Zimbabwe, for instance, uh, the president will not be able to attend, but then he will send uh, a member of his government to attend. So uh, from Africa, the leaders that will be able to attend are taking their time to really be, uh, confirm whether they'll be able to attend or not, and they would announce it as and when the time draws closer. Nathan. Um, let, let's go to uh, news of Kenya right now. So I see that um, Kenya tried to, you know, battle the, the rising costs and they subsidised petrol. However, that has been, what, the new president has scrapped the petrol subsidy there in Kenya. Um, so what does that do to fuel prices and for the people? Indeed, uh, the scrapping of the subsidies means that um, the cost of fuel is really going to be higher uh, because we know the subsidies tend to cushion consumers uh, when they want to buy fuel. But this new president uh, says uh, the subsidy also uh, takes a hit on the country's coffers, so there is a need to really totally scrap it so the country can raise more revenue to be able to undertake other developmental projects. This certainly is not a good news for a lot of Kenyans who are already feeling the high, I mean, economic situation in the country in terms of inflation being high at the moment. So scrapping this particular subsidy on fuel um, is really a big deal and people are not happy about it. You know, they use fuel, I mean, when it comes to the LPG, they use it for cooking and also electricity and all that. So um, it's really a big issue in Kenya. <laughs> it's a big, bold move by the new president, but then something has to be done to raise money for the country and this is the step that he's taking. Yeah, it's the dance that all the governments around the world are making, aren't they? Tell me about uh, here in Zimbabwe, so some students protested about high fees and then end up getting arrested. Yes, uh, some 14 students were arrested on Monday and charged with disorderly conduct. Uh, the reason was simple. They were just protesting on um, against the high cost of uh, I mean, fees, uh, university fees. And the issue is that they are facing up to tenfold increase in their university fees. So they decided to protest so there will be a reduction. But instead, they were arrested for uh, what the government says, uh, causing disorderly conduct. And uh, human rights uh, groups like Amnesty International has called for the Zimbabwean authorities to drop the charges uh, against the university uh, students. Uh, and uh, we know that five, uh, they were released, the 14 students were released after paying a fine or bail, and also five others were also arrested just this Wednesday. And uh, human rights groups are saying that uh, this is actually a travesty of justice because if people are protesting for a reduction of school fees, uh, they shouldn't rather be, I um, mean, uh, arrested. Nathan. Uh, Nabil, you know, the treasures of Africa uh, were plundered and they were on display in many uh, museums around the world. But I see the Benin bronzes go on display in Berlin for the last time. Indeed, um, it's going for, I mean, display for the last time. And it's such a welcoming news because for some time now, there's been calls for uh, those stolen artifacts during the colonial era to be returned to the African countries, and these thousands of Benin bronzes are said to be brought back uh, to the country after they have a final display. And we know that uh, this move um, of retaining these artifacts um, is in the latest of series by the Germany uh, to try to 
responsibility for the crimes that were committed during the colonial era. So a lot of excitement in Benin that finally uh, these artifacts are returning uh, to the country. Nathan. Nabil, thank you very much, sir. There he is from Ghana, that is Nabil Ahmed. It is 17 minutes past five. Well, local runner Michael Voss has the chance to create history at tomorrow's Rotorua Marathon. So if Voss wins, he becomes the first male to win three consecutive titles over the iconic course. In the marathon's 58-year history, only Alice Mason and Nyla Carroll have achieved it. So the 25-year-old builder told Barry Guy he's keen to join the two women as a three-time winner. Yeah, I think this Saturday it will be solely just for the win. Yeah, I don't really have a time in mind for this race. We'll just cruise on out and then just see who's around and you sort of work it out. And then, I mean, the pace might be hot from the start and, yeah, you might be running hard and could be on for a PV. But, um, yeah, if it's sort of a easy to moderate pace, then I'll hopefully just sit and get to 30, 32K or so and hopefully still feel comfortable and then slowly start winding it up and hopefully... um stay strong and bring it home. So where's 10Ks to go? Is that out by the airport or something? Is it? Where's it? Yeah, so it's basically just after the last decent hill. Um, I think it's called Mowriwa Hill. Sort of come down off that and past the Fokotani turn-off and then um, basically a 10K long stretch, which is, yeah, majority of it's still flat and that's um, where a lot of people sort of get stuck and have nothing left. So you sort of got to make sure you get to that point still feeling strong and fresh. Have you thought about sort of the history of Rotorua and, you know, what it'd be like to win three times? Yeah, well, my coach being a bit of an old boy, he's talked to me a lot about it. Yeah, I don't think I really appreciated it as much in the early years winning it as I think I should have. There's some cool names on there, and I actually wasn't aware about no one getting the free peak before. So um, that was only brought to my attention maybe halfway through this year. Someone mentioned it, and I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And then, yeah, I'm excited to try achieve it. Have you looked who's your, who's going to be chasing you, do you think? No, I was, yeah, I wouldn't have a clue, eh? Like I say, you sort of see people that you know on the start and then first 5 or 10k, if there's still people there, you sort of get a rough idea who's going to be there for the majority of the race. Yeah, that's just where you got to sort of come up with your plan and I don't really like seeing who's going to be lining up or who to worry about because oh, I just had stress and you can get yourself worked up over it, so I don't know if I just run better, just yeah, keeping it chill and just relaxing for its uh, race day. All the best to everyone that's running. And that, my mum and dad, they ran their first marathons there and they got the little pottery shoe uh, when you do that. So that's uh, Rotorua Marathon runner going for number three, Michael Voss. Look at the time, 19 minutes uh, past five already. I'm Nathan Radade and you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So between now and six, the Minister of Fruit and Veggies is here with the fruit of the week. Also, we're going to speak to an accountant who's turned cook, and she's going to put both those skills to reducing food waste. There they are, standing in the Big ones, small ones, some big as There he is, he's in the fresh produce market, and he's just... Coming up there between a bunch of celery, like uh, you know, like one of those nature documentaries. There he is, the Minister of Fruit and Veggies, David Bellamy. Thank you. Uh, Glenn Forsyth is with us. Kia ora, Glenn. How are you? Kia ora, buddy. I, I always remember celery. They they use that in um, sound effects for movies. When yeah, they, they break, do. Break yeah, yeah. Kung Fu movies. Yeah. They're punching cabbages yes. and celery is what they do. Hey, um, I've heard. I don't know if you've heard the same thing that King Charles III's crown will have a tomato in it because that's now the most expensive thing in the universe. Why are they so expensive, Glenn? 
Oh, well, it's fantastic you bring that up. We've got something about that in uh, veggies. But yes, I thought we would take the opportunity this morning to talk about the journey of the tomato pricing for the past few seasons, Mm. as it's quite the hot topic. Firstly, how wholesale pricing has gone. Now, this week last year, Trust Tomatoes, for example, they were $10.50 a kilo. Uh, This week in 2020, $9 a kilo. Uh, but top this, Nathan, this week pre-COVID 2019, they were only $6 a kilo. Now, this uh, current week, though, 2022, they're up to a red-hot $14 a kilo. Now, we can draw our own conclusions, but pre-COVID feeding 10-plus billion people, for example, was looking like a walk in the park. However, why are prices now so high? Firstly, labour shortages and horticulture is not for the faint-hearted. Solution, we need to free the labour market up. We need to be able to uh, employ hard-working, fast workers in large numbers. Now, if not enough Kiwis want this hard work. We should be able to recruit the best from all over the world, and, and you know, and, and who want to come here. Uh, and now, of course, significant cost increases post COVID: fuel, fertilizer, finance, insurance, labour, packaging, all get passed on to the consumer. One tomato grower we talked with this week, he left his 2.5 hectare house empty this spring, and that area represents 700 ton of product in a season. So what does uh, losing growers cause? Extra tomatoes coming in from Australia currently by aeroplane. Not good news. So growers actually care, and what is happening in the trenches right now is terrifying. They want to be listened to and have changes made back again for the, the benefit of everybody, Nathan. Okay. Yeah, he's on the soapbox mm. today. Boy. Um, tell me about the it veggies, veggies uh, this weekend out there. Still pretty bleak. Even they're doing it tough too. Yeah, yeah, but he caught up with the lovely Glenis Lou this week and asked her what's the scoop on veggies in Mount Eden. Her reply was, was uh, there are no good buys on vegetables, all expensive, unless you're going to eat carrots, onions, kuma or leeks. It, that was so hilarious. The new vegetable on the block is asparagus, but that's still holding its price. The New Zealand Asparagus Council have created a new logo this year to encourage people to eat more when it flushes, and that is by calling it Queen of Veggies. The picture is asparagus, spears in a cup, and to the right, a shadow of these these looking like a queen's crown. So, yeah, look out for that. Uh, more vegetables sighted at the markets yesterday were beautiful-looking new-season indoor New Zealand courgettes, fair numbers of cucumbers, and good volumes of mushrooms, including the shiitake variety for something a little daring. Now, as we move into the last quarter of the pumpkin year, buy more regular and avoid long storing at home. And finally, the new season capsicums and a tease of new season eggplant. Gee, they looked almost too glossy to be true. Tell me uh, about fruit this week, Glenn. What's going on there? Because I know I've seen uh, a good variety of those reddish apples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Now, what was lacking in the vegetable aisles, some heavy volumes of fruit made up for it. These included navel oranges, lemons, aphora mandarins, green kiwi fruit, and grapes. Now look closely at the grapes. There is some pitting on the skin and brown ones, so shop around for the best. Uh, the price of gold kiwi fruit. Now that's lifting. Australian strawberries are selling well, and new season tangelos and blueberries are underway. Now those apples. We also spotted some of those rocket apples at the market. Now they're the miniature-sized ones and packed in their own unique tube. They are a blend of two of the sweetest, crunchiest apples around: Gala and Splendor. Now um, we finish on fruit of the week, and she's another citrus. Okay, Glenn, what's your fruit of the week? New Zealand grapefruit. Controversial. Yeah, so, <laughs> sorry, sorry, my man. One of our most passionate grapefruit growers is Murray Burgess. He's 30 kilometres inland from Gisborne, and he loves the crop's versatility. You know, we have the Morrison and the Cutler's Red humming now, 
Uh, check that grapefruit doesn't interact badly with any medications you may take, but a combination of fresh New Zealand grapefruit and orange juice is divine. So crack into a few of those over the weekend. Beautiful. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Glenn Forsyth. Beauty, there we go. It's uh, 5.28. You're listening here too. First up, there is our Minister, Fruit and Veg. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The day of our life we call September 16th. On this day in 1975, Papua New Guinea said bye-bye and they achieved full independence from Australia. Uh, we've got actually Katrina. Have you got the, the music there for this one? No. That's not what I'm thinking of. Uh, on this day in 1984, Miami Vice uh, debuted on NPC. And that wasn't. Oh, here we go. Hey, there it is. Yes, here it is. With the greatest theme music at that time and those guys playing Hayala and it looked very cool. On this day in 1993, also the TV show Frasier came out, of course, an offshoot of Chairs. It went on to actually be more successful. I don't know. Uh, birthdays today, you share your birthday with BB King, with David Copperfield, with Jennifer Tilly, and Leslie Nope, otherwise known as Amy Poehler. Uh, and uh, it's actually the birthday today of Colonel Jacob Schick. He was born in 1877. So he's the guy that patented the electric razor in 1928. It went very, very well. He set up the Schick Dry, Ra- Dry Shaver Company, made a ton of money. Then he kind of had to run away north of the border and become a Canadian citizen to avoid an investigation for tax evasion after making a ton of money and trying to stash it in the Caribbean. And on this day, golfers, listen to this. In 1869, this was the day of the first recorded hole-in-one. It was Tom Morris at Prestwick's eighth hole in Scotland. The best things in life are free. Joining us now from our business team is Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora, sir. Uh, good morning. I forgot what to say there for a grapefruit. second. I was so busy. I'm thinking about grapefruit. Yeah. I'm thinking about Frasier. Yeah. One of the best. I grew up watching that. And I think looking back, it kind of messed me up in a weird way. Were you Niles? Did you get a bit Niles? A bit of Niles, yeah, possibly. Quite yeah. possibly. But, um... <laughs> Great apartment, though. Oh, it was, wasn't it? For the, well, Stunning. I mean, you could afford it. I always thought, you know, the, this radio studio. I was so impressed oh. with these big reels spinning around and around. But yes, grapefruit was also strange. But, yeah. Um, let's okay, talk so, about house prices, Yeah, let's though. talk about that falling house prices, because some are going to go, hey, it's coming back towards what I can afford, and others going, this is terrible! So, where are we? Yeah, What's the, going on? The throwing Who's question got the I sent you was, falling house prices, is it a bad thing? It mm. depends on who you are, because I thought about this when we got this CoreLogic, the property research firm, they pump out so many different reports that analyse and dissect the property market. The latest one shows that four out of five suburbs in New Zealand are seeing property prices fall. Mm. And that question, who's is it bad, it really depends on who you are in the market. And look, this was summed up quite well by, uh, you know, by Bernard Hickey, the business commentator, reporter, and I've seen it said by other people as well, that if you bought a house in the past year and the price starts falling, it's not necessarily a bad thing unless one or two things, unless you have a dramatic change in circumstances, be Mm. it if you're in a relationship, that relationship breaks down and you need to sell quickly, or there's a a, a death, really. It's, It's those two things. 
for the most part, people who bought when the market's going down or when the market was at its peak, you know, most economists are going are sort of suggesting that house prices are going to track downwards, maybe go sideways for a bit. But look, there's probably every expectation that they'll continue to increase as well. Um, house prices have never had a, pr- a prolonged fall in New Zealand. Well, they've never ever. gone back to the prices of 1971, have oh, they? You know, you things go. always and get... Like, yeah. well, this, this brings me to my next point, which is that we've got figures from Real Estate Institute this week shows that house prices down 5.9% on a year ago to $800,000. However, they were still 19% higher than they were in 2020 and 37% higher than they were in 2019. So that's why for the most part, most buyers, you know, they've had their properties for a very long time. Yeah, prices have gone down, but they've still made wonderful gains on paper in the value of their key asset. The problem for first-home buyers, I guess, is the fact that mortgage costs are going up. You know, the Reserve Bank still... It looks like it's going to be continuing to raise interest rates into next year, taking the OCR to about 4%. So for people like me, other other people who are um, maybe looking to buy, the, de- the deposit, maybe that's not the biggest barrier as it once was. It's still really, really high, but it's the fact of being able to service that mortgage over its, um, over its lifetime. You'll be stress-tested to a much higher rate by banks to ensure that you can handle any future spikes in interest rates in the future. So, uh, look, it's a bit of a mixed picture. It's very hard to draw a single conclusion, but for the most part, not that bad for no. everyone. I think if I was, I'm just going to speculate, if I was like a commercial broadcaster and my biggest clients were to real estate firms, I'd imagine this would go down not so well in my news department. I don't think I, so. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. I guess so. I'm All my website. Yeah, work here. Then, yeah, don't I? But, um, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 yeah. Look, there are some people who just seeing things go down on paper. Their paper, their paper net worth is going down. Yeah, uh, but that's but, a bit scary. Folks, it's, it's going to be okay. We'll be I okay. Think. We'll be okay. Thank you very much, Nicholas. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 at 2.7. Let's go to your money markets now. This is what your Kiwi dollar is buying you, 59.71 US cents, 89.04 Australian cents, 59.72 Euro cents, 52.04 British pence, 4.181 and 85.69 Japanese yen. Yeah, look, um, the cost of food uh, has increased by 8.3% since last August, and with it comes a concern that it might drive more people just to lead unhealthy lifestyles uh, with junk food often cheaper than healthy alternatives. Our reporter Felix Walton has more. At most supermarkets, tomatoes will cost around $15 a kilo. A bag of chips, $1.50. A litre of home brand fizzy, 90 cents. For many Kiwi families, the choice is obvious. Why get one bag of veggies when you could get 10 bags of chips or 16 litres of fizzy drink? Emeritus Professor of Nutrition at AUT, Elaine Rush, says the issue is a compounding disaster. Because it's not just food that's going up, it's petrol and mortgages and other influences such as climate change affecting our food supply. The war in Ukraine is affecting global food supplies. It could be the beginning of a downward spiral. Professor Rush isn't alone. Principal economist Brad Olson of Infometrics doesn't see prices dropping any time soon. He says price tags continue to outpace wages, even with low levels of unemployment. That 8.3% increase highlights that although some people in the economy are getting pay rises, at the moment those inflationary pressures for just the essentials continue to move ahead of where most households are able to earn. But that 8.3% increase 
isn't across the board. Some foods, like fruits and vegetables, are nearly 15% higher than last year. A lot of our fresh produce is continuing to increase in price, over 15% gains over the last year, uh, partially down to the likes of weather, but also importantly we're seeing huge input cost increases that are hitting New Zealand's farmers and horticulturalists. He says farmers are spending more on their expenses, like fertiliser, driving their prices even higher. But in the next aisle, soft drinks have gone up by less than 4%. Brad Olson says the enormous price disparity is driving people toward unhealthy lifestyles. If there is a move away from healthier but more expensive products towards not so healthy but slightly cheaper and more affordable products, I mean, from an economic point of view, that's challenging. From a health system point of view, it's even worse. Elaine Rush warns that the issue could have long-term impacts on our health system. She says we're distracted by treatment and should focus more on prevention. Somehow we don't in public health invest in feeding people well, yet we invest a huge amount in pharmaceuticals and also in health care. And yet a lot of those would be prevented if we were fed better. Auckland City Mission distributed 65,000 food parcels last year, enough for about 3 million meals. Missioner Helen Robinson says when she first started nine years ago, they distributed one-sixth of that amount. She says housing costs are swallowing Kiwis' incomes and driving them to the mission's doorstep. So it would be a very, very common story that we would hear that two-thirds, three-quarters of someone's income is going towards literally paying the rent. So I think the real challenge that is before New Zealand at the moment is how do we stabilise housing costs and then how do we increase incomes. Auckland City Mission saw massive demand when the pandemic first hit but it persists even two years later. The last couple of months, demand has certainly been steady. Um, It's not been the kind of demand that we saw during the peak of the lockdown. It has uh, decreased, but nowhere near the level at which it was before COVID. Ms Robinson estimates that one in every five New Zealanders struggle to afford food. That's Felix Walton with that story. Barry Guys with me from the RNZ Sports hey. Department. Barry, what you a game, what a game, yeah. what a game, what a game. You sounded a bit tired this morning. Yes, I stayed up for all of it, and the first half I regretted being awake for all of it because it took an hour, and yep. uh, then by the end of it, mind blown. Yeah, wow. imagine imagine how grumpy you would have been if I'd lost oh. as well, you know, with a lack of sleep. Goodness, I sort of chuckled a bit at the end, uh, really, uh, when I, you know, I didn't stay up, but I read about it this morning when well, I we, woke up at four, and... Um, there's a yeah. thing with challenging the... Re- you, know, you, you play the people on the field, you play mm. position on the field, but the wonderful thing of that sport is you also try and challenge the ref and other things like that. And all game, Australia was slowing it down, slowing it down, and right to the very end, uh, the Australians, everybody, basically they had the game won and they just needed to kick it out for a line-out and Bernard Foley stood there and wasted time and wasted time and the, the Twitter police have been out on there timing it. It took him nearly two minutes to kick that ball out. The ref said, you've got to kick it out. And he went, OK, he blows the whistle, turns around again to stall for more time, and the ref got him with Rule 9D. 
You can't do that. So it was good old-fashioned gamesmanship. He challenged the ref thinking, I bet you won't blow that whistle in front of this home crowd. And he did. Unbelievable. So if you are just waking up and haven't heard, so then uh, New Zealand got the ball with no no time left, more or less, and scored the winning try right at the end because Bernard Foley was uh, delaying the game. And you could even see that his teammates were telling him just kick the ball out. (laughs) Uh, So Dave Rennie has come out and said that uh, the referee had no feel for the game and that he's, he's never seen anything like that before. But perhaps we do need to see things like that uh, again. And all I can say is that, um, you know, well, it happened to the other side. So well, I mean, there look, you go. You know, we, we we had the winning of the game and then we had the losing of the game. They've got this beautiful magic trick for just getting through defensive screens that run up fast. Uh, I was really impressed with Australia there as well. So it had all the, the goods, the highs, the lows, the highs and lows. Um, mm. I don't know if Darcy Swain is the big Australian lock who will get to play here because it looks like he really took out and probably ripped yeah. the inside uh, part of the knee joint there for Quinn Tupaya. But if he does show up at Eden, Park for that game. It'll be the, you know, we'll finally have a bad guy back like we did with Quade Cooper. Yeah, exactly. It had everything. It did. And the All Blacks came out on top. So, uh, yeah, delighted for that. Sets it up for that uh, next one. Um, And the other news this morning, Roger Federer has has retired. Uh, I uh, just printed out um, some of his milestones and it was four pages. (laughs) I'll just quickly go through a couple. Most consecutive weeks at world number one, 237. Yes. Oldest player to hold the number one ranking, 36 years, 320 days. Only player to reach all four Grand Slam finals in the same calendar year three times. And only means player to win at least 10 titles on clay, grass and hard courts. Roger, Roger Federer, 41, retired. Can I, can I just say, I received a message here from Aidan McLaughlin here, and he's, he's got the photograph of Roger Federer has shown his um, resignation letter, and it's a lovely letter, but it's a bit crooked and it's not there, and he's got, you'd think with all his money, he'd have a printer that would print the words on page on one page nice and straight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he did it himself, did he? Yeah, but uh, you know. And now uh, we're just, just quickly on that go, too, go. Uh, a relative of, of, uh, of uh, mine, uh, an early uh, couple, they saw Roger Federer play in Auckland and they also yes. saw Bjorn Borg play in Auckland. So uh, that was a long time ago in the oh. late 90s, so well done to them. And uh, big game Saturday night in Napier. That's right. It'll be beautiful weather. Hawks Wellington challenging for the Ranfilly Shield. They haven't had it since Paul Quinn was captain, have they? What's this is the hundredth time that uh, Wellington has been involved in a Ranfilly Shield game, and I'd put it to you that they haven't won too many of the majority of those. So, right. um, you know, I, Hawks Bay probably got a good chance. That of was always the couldn't it, lose game for me, you see, because I was born in Wellington and then grew up in Hawks Bay, so it was it was one of those good ones. Was the... I've lived in uh, Wellington for whatever it is, and all the Ranfilly Shield games, Wayne Smith taking it away from them and a few others. Oh, well, good luck to them. Cheers. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Barry Guy, he's got a lot to do this weekend because too much sport just isn't enough. It's 18 to 6 and I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up in RNZ National. So between now and 6 o'clock, you're going to hear a a really interesting chat. Well, I found it really interesting anyway with an accountant turned chef who's applying both skills to reducing food wastes. Uh, And also the First Up crew went on a field trip to see how our COVID immunity stacks up. Stay tuned. We found ourselves very interesting. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six. 
So double eight this morning, this morning, it's Susie Ferguson and Kim Hill. Kia ora, Kim, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan, how are you? I'm good, I'm pleased to hear your voice, what's going on? You'd be tired, you would have oh, watched the Blitterslow Cup last night. I did, night. I did. And did then you? I, and then I went to bed and I tried to calm my head, but I couldn't, <laughs> you know one of those ones? Yeah. Yeah. I know. So you replayed it all night long. <laughs> I did. It was unbelievable. Well, it was a bit of a thriller, although an unconvincing win, I've been told. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, but I think this is funny. We're always like, oh, we don't want easy games. And as soon as we get one, we complain about it. Ooh, exactly. Ooh, ooh. It was good. It was, it, exactly. was, it, was, it was at Marvel Stadium. So there you are. It was like a movie. Went up and down and up and down. There's, um, there's You know, there's never any entirely good news, is there? Like, we'll be talking about... <laughs> The quite surprising growth in the economy in yes. the second quarter. But does that mean the Reserve Bank will have to increase interest rates even more? And then people will struggle to pay their mortgages. Meanwhile, property prices are going, you know, it's up and down. Yeah. It's a roller coaster ride, Nathan. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in London, of course, the queues, if you want to see the Queen's coffin, you'd be waiting maybe eight hours mm. in that line. But we'll be talking to Corin Dan after six. The Prime Minister has arrived, our Prime Minister has arrived, she'll be meeting the King, I think she already has actually, the Prince of Wales, and the uh, the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss, of course, Jacinda Ardern has only just been to Britain, so it's the long haul back again yeah. for the Queen's funeral. She will do. And it's time to vote in local government elections, you cannot complain. If no, you don't if vote. you don't vote, you're right. Hey, thank you very much, Kim. Pleasure. You, uh, uh, Kim Hill and Susie Ferguson with you after six. As you've heard um, in the show, the price of ingredients for meals is really high at the moment. But never fear, trained accountant Linda Duncan is here. So in her latest book, she says that we can eliminate volumes of food waste by delving into a forgotten culinary art. Linda told me about that lost technique. But first, I asked her, so are you a cookbook author now or are you an accountant? No, I'm actually a full-time cookbook author. It's sort of taken over my life. That's fantastic. And so I guess, you know, you've got some good accountancy skills to help you there with the money that comes in from doing cookbooks. When when did you decide that first time again, you know what, I'm going to write a cookbook? <laughs> That's a good question. I decided to write uh, my first cookbook about five years ago. So it was just sort of based on the fact that while my children were at home, I used to flick through my cookbooks and, you know, try to get inspired, but found that I would just end up putting my cookbooks down again and just going back to the same old meals because a lot of the recipes, I either didn't have the ingredients or they were just too fiddly for everyday uh, meals. So I thought, right, I think the world's easiest recipes mm. and it's just taken off from there. Linda, as you were answering that question, there was so much nodding going on and here. I'm like, yeah, yeah. One of the things <laughs> I, I find really frustrating is I'll watch, you know, one of those cooking shows and they come back and they go, oh, I've just been down to the farmer's market and I've got some organic quince and I've got this and da-da-da. And I'm like, okay, cool. I have none of this. I can't relate to this. So that was that was pretty much what, what you went with, really. Was it? That, was that it? That's right. One of the main concepts of my book is one the ingredients have to be really basic so mm. you know if you've got butter sugar flour tomato sauce soy sauce you know all those basic ingredients in your house yes then you're going to be able to pick my book up and start cooking out of it so there's no ingredients that you think now what is that what is pony granite 
Yeah, where yeah. do I buy all this mirin from that I'm supposed to yeah. be using? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was thinking about, you know, your former career there as an accountant. And, and, and when I, sorry, I'm going to stereotype accountants here. I think of it, it's very ordered. It's with maths and formulas. But to me, that seems more like baking. Because when you're cooking, you're sort of improvising and you can tutu about with stuff. How do you sort of trade those two parts off of your life? Or are you just like a Swiss army knife that can do everything? <laughs> No, not at all. I suppose it's just really through the experience of raising children. And I like to simplify things. And I was like that with accounting as well when I was running our practice. Everything has just become so complicated, you know, and I know that business people will relate to this. Even just to read a set of financial accounts now is really difficult. And it doesn't have to be like that. And I feel the same way with food, you know, I think what's happened is we're just bombarded constantly with information that is irrelevant. So we all end up getting very confused. And I think it's the same with cooking. You know, you just have to read some recipes where there's a paragraph for every step. Now, when you're in the midst of cooking, <laughs> that, it gives the illusion that the, re- the recipe is a lot harder than what it is. And so I just wanted to take things right back to basics. So every recipe in my book just has very simple instructions. So you're not having to stand there reading a whole paragraph or one step. Well, I'll just tell the audience, 60,000 books sold, 13 countries around the world, the Hungarians, the Irish, the South Africans, they're into it as well. There's something beautiful I love about a lesson that you are teaching, and it's the one trial and error, and knowing that it's okay to try things, and it's okay to do the odd flop in the kitchen, isn't it? That's exactly right, yes. You know, I've literally spoken to thousands of people over the last four years, as I've gone around promoting my books. And, you know, the thing that stands out the most for me is how we've become a nation of really picky eaters. And I think back to, you know, a couple of generations ago, even when I was growing up, we would have to sit at the dinner table until our plates were empty. (laughs) It absolutely astounds me how many parents are cooking three different meals a night to cater for their fussy children. Mm. I just think we need to teach our children that not everything we put in our mouths has to be a taste sensation. We need to learn that what we eat is really more about what it's doing for our bodies and nourishing our bodies. And And a wonderful way too to avoid food waste. Too, which is a you know horrible problem worldwide. It's it's terrible when we're in a very luxurious situation in our country where sometimes people can just throw food away. And imagine those people in other countries that would love to finish that plate off. That's exactly right. I think we need to take a, a leaf out of the history books as well. Most of us haven't been through a world war or a depression where food was scarce. Grocery shopping is expensive now. And so we don't have food shortages, but we have a problem with food costs. For the same reasons, this is why we need to go back to just the basic forms of cooking and, you know, learn from the past and learn how to make things from scratch. You know, if you really want to save money on your food bill, make things from scratch. That's Linda Duncan. Now, her book is called The World's Easiest Recipes, and all the volumes are available at... T-W-E-R dot co dot NZ. 
So data shows that New Zealanders aren't taking the opportunity to protect themselves against COVID with booster shots in the same numbers as we were doing it mid-pandemic. So around the first up newsroom, we quite often have discussions about things, and one of the ones was we got into a, hey, how immune do you reckon you are competition? Um, you know, based on when we got our boosters and if we've had um, the coronavirus, of course. So we got in touch with biotech company Orbis, which has been trialling a device that can help to answer those questions. So they invited first up to head down there. So we went on our first class trip together. Uh, Katrina got stuck in a car. Uh, We went down there to see how our immunity stacks up. Here's Leonard Powell. At the Orbis Diagnostics offices in the Auckland suburb of Newton, eight of us file in to be tested. You can hold my hand. <laughs> this is the boss, Angela. Uh, sort of. Orbis has developed a device called the Arca, which it describes as a lab on a disc. It's been designed to carry out health tests that would normally need to be done in a laboratory, but in a fraction of the time and with just a tiny blood sample. The company hopes it will one day make it far easier to diagnose things like hepatitis or to assess liver function or metabolic health. It's also able to assess how your body has responded to the COVID-19 vaccine. But, as the company is at pains to make clear, the test can only tell you about one of the numerous measures of immunity to the virus. We're shown the circular disc at the heart of the technology, which our own Nathan Radere has a go at describing. It looks like in the old days when you would pull apart your DVD player or your CD player and you've got a little spinny aroundy thing. So that's where the central force, that's where the central, that's it, it, isn't it? And the the disc sits on it like an old DVD player, spins around. It's incredible. We file into an office two by two, and with a painless pinprick, a tiny amount of blood is extracted from our fingers by Orbis lab technician Angela Chai. Of the eight of us being tested, all but two have had COVID-19. Producer Jeremy Parkinson, who recently had his fourth booster, is yet to contract the virus, but fears an upcoming holiday may be his downfall. I think I'm completely immune, because I've not had it yet, I think. It just sees me and runs. These could be famous last words. I'm going to get it in Queenstown next week because that's how it works. Everyone comes back from Queenstown with COVID-19. Nathan has also had his fourth booster, but had COVID just last month, so is the most recent person in the team to have had the virus. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, what's, really, what, what's really weird yep. is like the thought of getting a, a, an injection's fine with me. I'm fine with that, but it's yep. the pricking the end of my finger that freaks me out. <laughs> it won't take long. It will oh, okay. be really, really quick. Okay. Producer Katrina got COVID after travelling to Wellington in June and is yet to get her second booster. Leonard's finger has been squeezed because he hasn't had enough liquid. It's like milking his finger for blood. That's what it looks like at the moment. It's a little tiny, tiny pinprick. Oh that evening, we each get an email with the results. We're given a number between 0 and 5, with a graph showing how we compare with the other people who have been tested. Of our eight results... Nathan had the highest immunity of 4.4. Producer Tom Taylor, who was last vaccinated in October and had COVID in March, had the lowest score of 1.0, while producer Matthew Tunison, who has not had COVID, was slightly higher at 1.2. Orbis Chief Executive Damien Camp helps us understand the results. The set uh, of the results um, from your group that came in, there was only eight of you, so it's quite a small sample set, so it's it's difficult to look at the statistical relevance of those, those numbers. But on earlier clinical trials that we've done um, where we tested 170 people with um, Air New Zealand airline staff and the general public and a a differentiation between vaccinated and unvaccinated, the results showed very clearly a differing 
uh, antibody level based on the time since vaccination and effectively you're getting a curve and seeing the antibody level drop off over time and that's consistent with the international literature on this topic. While the numbers are a good indicator that the vaccine's doing its job, Mr Camp says they're just a small part of a very large picture. It's really important to keep in mind though that an individual's immune response to vaccination or even to catching COVID and, and you know, convalescence and recovery is actually very different from one person to the next and based on a whole bunch of other factors as, as well. And while catching and recovering from COVID-19 can give you a degree of protection, the test primarily detects the immunity provided by vaccination. Your body produces slightly different antibodies against Omicron when, you, um, when your body detects Omicron, it produces antibodies specific to that. We're still measuring a proportion of those, um, but our, our main measure are the antibodies produced specifically in response to that vaccination and booster shots. So what are our results actually telling us? Mr Camp says they're an indication of how your body would respond to COVID infection rather than the likelihood of catching it in the first place. We know with Omicron and, and current vaccines, the vaccinations aren't going to stop you from getting COVID, um, but they'll certainly give your immune system a, a kickstart in terms of being able to battle or target COVID when it enters your body and um, allow you to get less sick. And whilst these particular immunity tests are far from definitive, the company believes the technology can one day be used to carry out at-home blood testing. As Mr Camp says, picture an over-the-phone doctor's appointment where you can do your own blood tests. The advantage of, of our ARCA technology is that it provides more convenient and better access uh, to, to diagnostic testing. Eventually you could actually uh, imagine a situation where you could actually do some of these tests uh, in the home on a desktop-sized uh, instrument as opposed to uh, you know, full venous draw with, through your doctor and then waiting for the results to come back and then you know, a fully sort of integrated telehealth solution. Yeah, there it was. Look, uh, we're so immune. Uh, Morning Report is next with um, Susie and Kim from all of us here at First Hope. Have yourselves a wonderful day, and we will be back in your ears on Monday.